Well, good morning. Uh, Daniel wasn't kidding when he said I was pretty reluctant for a long time about doing this. I kind of turned it down a few times. And I really haven't done anything like this before. Uh, last time I can remember even standing in front of people like this was in high school doing oral presentations and I hated it then and I've kind of avoided it ever since. I, I very intentionally work like in the woods with bees. Uh, so this is a challenge for me, but anytime I started thinking about it, even this morning and I start getting nervous, I'm thinking about my sermon and what I'm gonna say, I started taking my mind off of it and just thinking about our church and you guys and just like, you know, God, just give me a love for these people. And when I look around here, you know, I'm not just looking at people to, to talk at with my sermon. I'm seeing people that, for the most part, there's some of you I don't know, but I've been in community with a lot of you for a long time. And, and a lot of you have just really blessed my life over the last decade. And uh, this church has seen me become uh, a husband, you know, and then uh, a father as we had a baby, and then we had another baby, and then we had another baby. And, uh, you know, I went from you know, going to a tribe in the Schwartzes and learning what it meant to be in community, to leading our own tribe. And uh, this church has just blessed me so much. And so I, I really just see this morning as an opportunity um, to hopefully be a blessing to you as well. I mean, you guys saw me go through a lot of transitions in life, and now there's a new one here as I'm up here. This is kind of a new venture for me. So I just want to tell you guys that I appreciate you a lot, and uh, I, I really do love you guys. Um, and so, and so I'm, I, I am thankful for this opportunity, uh, despite putting it off for a while. So anyways, this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about fear. And uh, whoa. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, I was at home with my family, and I'm hanging out with my boys. It's Saturday morning, and we decided we're going to watch a movie. You know, just take it easy for a little bit. And we're scrolling around Disney+. Plus looking for something. I'm kind of looking for something that's middle ground, right? Like, they'll enjoy it, but I can kind of watch it too, and uh, a little selfish. But we ended up landing on Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know, really know what it was, but it's rated PG, so I figured, how bad can it be? Let's do it. So we're watching this, and it turns out it is a, like, modern twist, modern retelling of the Greek myths. So uh, I should mention that, like, my younger son had just, like, days before celebrated his fourth birthday. So he's kind of a little guy. And, you know, there's giant minotaurs throwing cars. The teacher turns into this evil pixie thing. They challenge Medusa. Medusa's got her, like, hair of snakes, and they cut off her head. Uh, next thing you know, they're in the underworld, and they're confronting Hades, and Hades is 20 feet tall, engulfed in flames, giant horns. He's got these things called hellhounds around him. And at some point, I look over at my, my boys, and, and my younger one in particular just had, like, like, and he's frozen. He's watching the whole movie like this. Just, and, um, like, definitely now, even, like, saying this out loud, I realize at some point I definitely should have pulled the plug. But I was kind of into it, too, and he seemed all right. I asked him. I was like, you want to go play a board game or something? But we watched it. We finished it. And so uh, over the next few weeks, I spent some good quality time with him late at night in his bedroom, uh, sleeping on his floor. He'd, you know, he'd come to me in the night, and, you know, and he's kind of giving it back to me, right, because, like, he's scared, but, like, there's nothing scary. Maybe parents out there know, like, when you're just, like, sleeping, and you just, like, hear this whispering, and you wake up, and there's just this face, like, inches away from you. It's kind of terrifying sometimes, but he, he's there, and he's like, okay, Dad, I can't sleep. Can you come sleep with me? I says, yeah, 
buddy, and my wife especially, she's probably like, you deserve this. Hey, this one's on you. Uh, so I'd go with them, right? And I'd go with them, and I, it's okay, buddy, I'm here. It's okay, I'll, you know, you're safe. There's nothing to be afraid of. Let's go back to sleep. And he would. Well, he was afraid, and we are going to be talking about fear this morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 11 as our guide. And uh, Psalm 11 is about confronting fear. But before we get into our psalm, I just want to clarify something about fear first, because when we look at that example of my son being afraid, I think, I think it would be easy for us um, to misunderstand what the Bible is saying when it says don't be afraid. I found out studying for this morning that do not be afraid is the most frequent command in the entire Bible. It beats out love the Lord your God, you know, love your neighbor. Do not be afraid is number one in frequency in times that the Bible says it. And if any of you are like me, you can hear that. And then you can be afraid. And not only now are you feeling fear, but you're feeling shame and guilt. You're feeling like, oh, I'm disobeying God now by being afraid. I shouldn't be afraid. And I think if that's what we're getting from this, you know, maybe this morning you're feeling um, anxiety, you're feeling fear. Um, I just want to say there's no guilt and there's no shame in this. Uh, I, like I said, look back to this story where, where Fraser's looking to me and he's afraid. I'm his father. I could have commanded him. There's nothing to be afraid of. I know there's no minotaurs in his bed. There's nothing to be afraid of. Go back to bed. And he could have obeyed that to a point. He could have gone back to his room and listened to me and laid down. But I don't think he could have made himself stop being afraid. Right? It takes me going with him and laying down with him. And he knows if there really is a monster under my bed, that monster better be afraid because dad's here. And I think that's what we see. The Bible is written over thousands of years. And throughout it, God's saying, don't be afraid. Because his people are afraid and they need comforting. And he's saying, it's okay, I'm here, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. So this morning when we say, don't be afraid, see that as an invitation to come to God in your fear and not something that heaps on guilt and shame for being afraid and actually isolates you from him. Um, another beginning point is that um, our psalm is written by David. And David's a man of great courage, right? Uh, and so sometimes that can almost be um, intimidating, right? Like, what can David teach us about being afraid? This guy took on, like, lions and bears and giants when he was, like, 13 years old or something. Um, but David was afraid sometimes. He was. It's just that his fear looked a little different. And there's different kinds of fears. And when David could take a threat head on like that, you know, he steps onto the battlefield and he sees this giant insulting his, his God and his people. He takes that threat on. But what about when he's just doing his job, playing his harp in the king's chamber, just doing his thing, and then all of a sudden King Spear throws a saw at his head and it comes flying by him? He's terrified. And, you know, David took on Goliath. He could probably take on King Saul, right? Um, but Saul is the Lord's anointed and he's his king, so... He doesn't know what to do, so he flees, and he becomes a fugitive, and he's on the run. And many of our psalms are written during this time period of David being on the run and being afraid and looking to God for comfort. Um, another time is when his son Absalom came to usurp the kingdom, right? He, there's a conspiracy, and his son turns the hearts of the people away from David, and David runs. He's afraid. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to fight his son. Think of it this way. Think about being a parent and being on a walk with your children, and a mean dog comes along, and he's growling at you, right? I think the first thing we would do is put ourselves between our children and the dog, right? And if need be, you would fight that. You would do anything you could to stop that dog from attacking your children, and that's terrifying. That's a scary situation, but you do it. But how many of those same parents have this inner fear 
that your children maybe don't love you, or as they grow up, they won't love you, or that you're failing your children in some way um, and not, you know, raising them right. And you have this inner fear. The dog is a very imminent threat, and it's serious and it's scary, but you take it on. I think it's that second, more intimate kind of fear that's harder for us to fight. And I think this psalm in particular does a very good job at addressing that kind of fear. And, uh, and so we're going to get to our big idea here. It's on the slide. We can overcome even our most intimate fears by intimately knowing the Lord. That's where we're going. I'm going to open this up in prayer. We're going to read the psalm and dive in to see how we get there. Um, but we can overcome even our most intimate fears by intimately knowing the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are a fearful people. So I pray that this morning, I pray you would remove any sense of guilt or shame that fear has instilled in us. I pray that our feeling of isolation would be removed. Help us to come together as your people. Lord, we're a fearful people. Help us to come before you, our Father God, and say, Lord, we're afraid. Can you come comfort us? Be with us. And we know that you desire to do that. So be with us this morning. Comfort us and show us who you are so we can put all of our fears into perspective underneath your greatness and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get into our psalm. Uh, and I want you to notice something when I read this. And I, I intentionally put the break in the psalm right here. At the end of verse 1 to the end of verse 3, notice that that section of the psalm is in quotes. And so what's going on here is David's reciting um, counsel that he's being given, and then in the rest of the psalm, he's going to respond to that counsel. So let's read it. Psalm 11, to the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. All right, so what's going on here? David's receiving counsel. And when we break apart this counsel, we see things like, you know, fly away like a scared bird. Go to your safe place. Um, there's people out there. There's hunters shooting at you. They're shooting at you from every shadow. Um, the very foundations underneath your feet are giving way. What's the point? There's nothing you can do. You've got to run. That's what he's being told. So th this counsel may even be well-intentioned. It's probably from someone close to him. But it's clearly the counsel of fear. He's being told to be afraid, and he's being told to act in that fear, to make his decisions based on that fear. And a little while ago, I was actually talking about this psalm in preparation for today with, with uh, Matt Schwartz, my brother-in-law, Madison Wyman. And Madison had this great question. I got to give him credit for it because it's really good. And he asked, what mountain is it that you flee to? Right? When life gets to be too much for you, where do you go? What do you go to? Is it alcohol? 
Is it food? Is it entertainment? Where are you seeking comfort? And instantly, I think there's this pushback, and I had to ask this question even for myself. Well, isn't it okay, like honestly, to just have some me time at the end of the day? You know, we all need time to unwind, right? And is it so bad to go to these things at the end of the day? Um, And can't we do all things for the glory of God? You know, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You know, what's so wrong with going to these things? Well, I'd say, yes, we can do all things for the glory of God. But let's be honest with ourselves. Is that really what we're always doing, right? Like, can you drink a beer for the glory of God? Yeah, I think you probably can. But when you've had a bad day at work and you come home and you turn the TV on and now you're drinking your fourth beer and just going dead to life, you know, are you doing that for the glory of God? Or are you asking that beer to do for you what only God was ever meant to do for you? Are you asking, you know, your, your, are you going to your mountain to seek comfort that only God was meant to give? The things themselves aren't bad. Mountains aren't bad. M- mountains are seen as holy places in Scripture. The mountain isn't the issue. It's the fleeing there to your mountain. Um, that's the problem. We're going to address this more um, when we get into David's response. But at first, we need to see here that the first thing, um, one of the things that fear tells us to do is right here, right? Flee like a bird to your mountain. It's escapism. Fear tells us to escape. Escape from the harshness of reality. Moving on to verse 2, there's another thing fear tells us to do. You know, um, if we listen to fear, if we listen to fear, it tells us to be paranoid. Look at this. Verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. I like the way the NLT um, puts it, and it says they shoot from the shadows. The wicked are. David's being told, David, it's worse than you think. Not only are these threats out there that you can see, but behind every shadow, they're out to get you. They're, they're out there, and they got their weapons trained on you. It struck me that in 1 Corinthians, we, we, we hear that love believes all things. It's just incredibly optimistic. And I thought to myself, well, I think fear believes all things too. It's just that fear believes all things are out to get you. Um... And I think that in the age of the internet, we have just unparalleled opportunity to be afraid of everything. I mean, when you look at all the articles out there, you look at everything on social media, you know, um, I always joke around with my wife that, you know, I'd come home and say I had a headache, and through the day she'd start asking these probing questions, and by the end of the day I'd figure it out and be like, you're on WebMD, aren't you? You're diagnosing me with something. And uh, a lot of the time she was, right, because there's just, we have so much opportunity to always instantly go to the worst case scenario. The, the news tries to get us to do this. We're just bombarded with these um, be afraid of everything messages. And it's not enough that we're afraid of very legitimate threats in front of us. Now we have to worry about every shadow and what could be lurking there. We have this feeling of impending doom, waiting for the hammer to fall at any moment. I love this quote here. It's from Seneca. He says, we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. And I just think that's so true. So if we listen to our fear... If we let fear tell us what to do, we're, we're, we got a good start here. We're escaping from life. We're paranoid. And it gets worse here. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, The foundations of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? Um, what's David being told here? He's being told, the world's falling apart. What's the point of even trying to do the right thing? Why are you going to spend so much time trying to be righteous when it's not even going to affect anything? Everything's broken. There's no point. 
There's no point. Fear tells us to give in to a sense of futility, of hopelessness, right? Now, as cheery as this is, this is actually the verse why I'm actually preaching on this this morning. This is one of those verses where I remember where I was when I read it and underlined it in my Bible. Um, as most of you know, I'm not a pastor. I'm actually a commercial beekeeper. That's what I do for a living. And as part of that, I usually go to this yearly beekeeping conference. Uh, people are usually blown away that something like this even exists, but it does. It's a real thing. And there's actually several of them. I go to one called the American Bee Federation, which I always thought sounded pretty hardcore, to be honest with you. And um, we go from all over the country every year, and we talk all things bees. And I go to this thing every year, and I just have this, like, sense of optimism. I'm just like, I'm going to go, I'm going to learn some new beekeeping tricks and facts, and I'm just going to come back, and I'm going to be just the best beekeeper I can be. And then I go, and, uh, and the talks will go something like this, okay? Like, talk number one will be, um, you got to treat your bees for mites. We got this mite that goes on our bees. It's actually, the scientific name for this thing is Varroa Destructor. That's like straight up apocalyptic. This sounds straight out of a sci-fi movie. It's real though. I don't know what you guys do when you go to work, but when I go to work, I'm fighting off a horde of Varroa Destructor. Um, it's pretty serious. Uh, so we're told, right? Like, you've got to treat your bees for these mites or they're all going to die. I'm like, okay, I, I know that. Um, talk two. Treating for mites is causing resistance, and treating your bees is making stronger mites and weaker bees, and if you keep treating your bees for mites, they're all going to die. So, well, that's not good. Um, talk three, you know, you're worried about the mites you have. New mite found in Thailand that is so bad that when it shows up, the old mites literally just leave. Um, true story, it's called a tropolalapse mite, and when the presenter put a picture of it on the screen, my son Fraser was like two at the time, and just randomly he screamed. And this is huge banquet hall, and the presenter, Dr. Samuel Ramsey, looks over and goes, yes, that's the right response, it's scary, ah! And uh, it, it was pretty good, it was perfect timing. But it's just kind of, it builds, and eventually you're not even talking about mites anymore, now you're talking about, you know, bees don't have any forage because of pesticide runoff. And there's a study done in Ohio where deer now have misformed jawbones because of Roundup in their diet, and I'm thinking to myself, like, Beekeeping? Who has time to worry about beekeeping? The whole world is falling apart. And, uh, you know, I start off so optimistic, but how am I supposed to worry about bees when there's deer in Ohio with deformed jawbones? Um, so eventually, this is a week-long conference, and I get like half of way through the day sometimes, and I'm so thankful. Like, it's, it is a great conference. I'm not doing it justice, but you get the point. That a whole week of this, like, can start to get a little overwhelming. So I, eventually I'll dip out and I'll go to my hotel room and I was going through the Psalms at the time. Clearly I didn't get very far because we're in Psalm 11. But that's where we were and I think it was divine because I came to this verse, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Also, it was 2020 when I was reading this, so as a, some of you may remember it was a fairly contentious political season. Um, so there was this feeling like things are broken out there and they're broken so far above me that, like, I'm trying to hear just learn, like, some nifty new beekeeping tricks, and meanwhile, the whole world's falling apart. Like, what's the point? Um, and the world, like, I get, I get what, like, a vote? And I don't even know how to use that. Like, I, I you know, and it, it's just this feeling of futility. And to be honest with you, I kind of got hung up there. To me, you know, you, know, sometimes you underline a psalm, you're like, that's the psalm for me. It's verse 3. And the rest is just kind of, like, filler. I didn't even realize that this wasn't David speaking. I kind of saw this as, like, it's the Bible, right? So it's like divinely appointed, like, apathy. <laughs> I was like, well, foundations are being destroyed. What's the point? What can you do? That's just the way it is. Um, 
so, that, so I came back to this years later. I had been quoting this verse, just telling everybody to like, I don't know, not very encouraging, right? Um, yeah, how not to encourage people with scripture. Uh, but that's not the end of the psalm. David responds to this, and his response is going to be so much more hopeful and so much more encouraging than where I got hung up. So that's where we're going to go now. But first, let's add it all up. We'll go to the next slide here. And when you put it all together, what do we have? We have escapism. Escapism. We numb out to life with anything we can find to distract us from the harshness of reality. And I want to make another note on escapism here um, before we move on. When we do this, right, when you are going to a thing to provide comfort for you apart from God, what is that called? Idolatry, right? So what's the problem with the little me time? Do you need rest? Yes, absolutely. The point here is not that David's being told, you know, it's not him needing time away that's the problem. That ultimately, if we're going to our little mountain to find comfort, Um, in our little safe place, we're asking something to be our God, to be our comfort, to be our rock, to be our refuge, as the psalm is going to say. That's the problem, okay? So yes, you need rest, but you're never going to find it in your idols. It's just never going to provide for you the rest that you need. The things aren't bad. It's what you're asking of them that's wrong. So fear is going to tell you to escape. Paranoia. We believe that everyone and everything is out to get us. And futility. We believe that our lives are absolutely meaningless and that there's no hope of anything ever changing. Um, so I'll invite the band back up and we're going to pray. And Pretty bleak, right? Like, that's awful. We don't want to end here. And truthfully, we don't really need to be told how to get here because if we're honest with ourselves, we either are here, we've been here, or likely we're going to end up here eventually, right? Like, we are human. We're afraid sometimes. And there's a lot to be afraid of out there. So it's not completely illegitimate either, right? We know that we're afraid. What we need is someone to tell us how to get out of here. And so we're going to take some time now and just kind of work through David's response to this counsel. Verse 1, back to the beginning. How does he introduce this counsel? In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? How can you say that to me? And how can you say that? Not just to me, but to my soul. Like, are you giving this counsel lightly? Because it's going deep. It's going to my soul. And how can you say this? Because there's crucial information here that you're leaving out. You're leaving out the fact that it's in the Lord that I take refuge. David challenges his counselor. So if we're going to fight this voice that's telling us to escape, the first thing we need to learn how to do is to engage, to stand our ground, to fight, to challenge And David doesn't want to flee to his mountain. He doesn't want to seek comfort in creation apart from his creator. It's actually a different mountain that he's interested in. And for that, we're going to look at Psalm 24, 3 through 4. And I'm going to read this. Um, I like the way that NLT puts it. He says, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols. Listen, flying away to your mountain is easy. You just imagine kind of like flying and alighting on this mountain somewhere and doing like cracking a beer, easy, right? Eating a carton of ice cream, easy. Vegging out on Netflix, easy. But climbing the mountain of the Lord, 
for us non-winged animals, um, people, uh, climbing is hard. It implies work. It implies engagement, right? That if we're going to go to the mountain of the Lord, it's going to take work. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be good. And I think that one of the paths we can take here, right, if these escape routes that we know are easy, what's hard is cultivating spiritual discipline to say, you know what, I've had a bad day and I need to spend some time in prayer. That's not really what we want to do at the end of a bad day, is it? But there's a warning here that we cannot go to our mountain all week long after work and then climb the mountain of the Lord on the weekend. It says that the only ones who are allowed to stand here are those whose hearts are pure, who do not worship idols. So if we've been going for comfort to our little mountain all week long, we're not allowed to stand on the mountain of the Lord. You know, we're called to do the work of climbing that mountain, seeking God's presence, not to earn his favor, right? We're not, we don't earn favor by doing this work of climbing. It's just that we want to spend time with him. And if we want to spend time with him, we have to spend time with him. And we spend time with him by doing things like prayer, reading the Bible, spending time like this in Christian fellowship. These are the things that bring us to this holy place where we can actually find the rest that we need, right? So don't escape. Don't fly away to the, your own little mountain. Don't settle for idols. You need true rest, and that's only found on the mountain of the Lord. And for that, it's going to take work. It's going to take climbing. So climb. Engage. We're going to move on here, and uh, we have this other voice that's telling us to be paranoid, right? To be just afraid of everything. How do we fight that voice? Well, if fear is telling us to be afraid of everything out there, uh, I think the answer here is that we don't solve our problems by staring at our problems. We need to stare at something bigger, and we need to have faith that there's something out there that's bigger than our problems. So we're going to fight paranoia with faith in God and who he is. Look at these verses. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6 here. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Listen here, David doesn't deny that things are falling apart. The point here isn't that we say, nope, everything's fine. You're telling me the foundations are giving way beneath my feet, the world's falling apart? No, they're not. That's not what he says. That might be a pretty accurate description of what's going on here, actually. Um, but he, it's like he's saying here, right? You're telling me the ground's giving way beneath my feet, so I'm not going to look down at everything falling apart. I'm going to look up, and when I look up, I see God, and God is still on his throne, and he's still in control. Don't stare at your problem. Stare at the one who's in control, who's still on his throne, all right? And when he looks up, who does he see? He sees the Lord still on his throne, and I don't think it copied here, but it, when you look in your Bible, when you see that word Lord, it's all capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals Lord. And this isn't David looking up to this vague higher power that um, he's calling out to this God out there somewhere who um, he believes somehow is just going to work things out in the end. Um, he's calling out to the Lord. This is God's covenant name. That's how the translators do this. Whenever you see that, it's Yahweh. That's the personal, intimate God. That's the God of David. That's the God who wants to be our God. And what's the difference? Why do we point that out? Well, when you call out to a lowercase g God, and when you call out to the Lord, what's the difference? It says here that the Lord sees. His eyes test the children of man. When you look up to the Lord, the Lord is looking back. He sees you. He's the God who sees. He's the God who cares. And he's the God who can help. 
And we have these verses here, right, that are um, pretty uncomfortable. Like how many of you, I, I love those pictures of people who like put like really flowery memes or like embroidered like, doilies or pillows or something and they have these like really, you know, hard verses. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. How many of you just kind of like read that really fast and kind of skip over it when you're reading, right? Like how many of you have that underlined in your Bible? Like it's hard for us sometimes. But David finds comfort in this, actually. And we have to ask, why? Remember what he's being told here. He's being told that in every shadow, there are hunters out there just waiting to get him. And that he has no control over that. And there's nothing he can do except for run away. And David's saying, if that's true, if these people are out there to get me while I'm pursuing the Lord, that's God's problem. That's not my problem. That's God's problem. The Lord is the just judge. It's faith in God still on his throne, being the just judge who can deal with the wicked so that it frees David up, right? When we have this attitude, when we have this idea that everyone's out to get us, we have this victim mentality, we can just obsess over how to get justice, right? How they're just going to get it. Uh, how we can um, get even with them or, or get them to leave us alone, if nothing else. And David's saying, all those problems in the shadow, I can't spend my life worrying about that. For that, I just need to trust a God who is sovereign over all. That's why faith is going to help us overcome paranoia. And finally, the feeling of futility, meaninglessness. How do we overcome that voice of fear? That nothing we do matters, that we can't really affect our situation, that we try to do the right thing, but there's just no point. Well, that's by knowing our purpose. Right? Because if we believe that our purpose is comfort, if we believe that our comfort is to get the desired results that we're looking for, then our life is going to be futile sometimes. Right? His friend here is telling him, the world's falling apart. What's the point of doing the right thing? What David says here, well, here's the point. The point is that the Lord is righteous and that the Lord loves righteousness and that he tests the righteous. We do righteousness not to get what we want, we do righteousness because it brings glory to the Lord. Let's look at this verse here, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. That's why we do righteousness. It meshes really well here. We just talked about the Westminster Catechism a couple weeks ago, this question. Um, but here it is again. You know, what is the chief end of man? You guys have had some practice. What is it? Yeah. I heard someone. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It was, I think, three weeks ago Matt talked about that. And so um, it's really important for us to remember that. The point of our lives is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Look at this verse. How do we glorify God? We do what is righteous. We do what is right, even when we don't see it working out for us. Even when the world is falling apart. Even when it seems like there's no point, because we believe that he sees it right? If you give a cup of water, Jesus says, to someone in need, you, you didn't lose that cup of water. God sees everything we do, and he cares. He cares whether we're doing righteous deeds or not. We do it for his glory, and there's more to that, though, right? That we're called to, in bringing him glory, enjoy him forever. And we see that in this verse, too. So if the reward for righteousness isn't just everything working out the way we want it to, what is the reward? The reward's right here. The upright shall behold his face. And in beholding his face, sitting in his presence, we find everything we're looking for. Everything we were looking for on our mountain, we find in him. And then we can look at all of life, all of creation, and truly come to enjoy it. 
all those things that were on your mountain, you get those back. You get those back because you can do all things for the glory of God. But it's only when you're in right relationship with your creator that you can have a right relationship with creation. And you learn to truly enjoy those things and stop asking them to be something that they could never be for you. Right? Like for me, a lot of it's food. Like, I just got to get through this day and I got some cereal waiting for me at home and I'm just going to punish that box. Like I'm, I get home and I just got to get through it and I can have that thing. But it doesn't matter how much you eat. Like you keep coming back to it because it never actually fills you. Right? It, it just, it, these things cannot make up for what you're going through. They don't give you the rest that you need. So, we need to know our purpose. We need to know why we're doing things and we need to know who we're going to. So let's add it all up again. So how are we going to fight the voice of fear? We're going to choose engagement over escapism. Um, Remember, escapism is easy. Spiritual disciplines are hard. They are. It's not what we want to do a lot of the time. But if you're going to find rest on the mountain of the Lord, you're going to have to climb. All right? So that's a practical way to choose engagement over escapism. Faith over paranoia. Remember, don't stare at your problems. Stare at God. I think a practical way here is learn something about the attributes of God. Learn a little bit about who he is, who his character is. We have this mentality now where we we think, um, I don't want to know facts about God. I want to know God. And that's true. That's true. But God is real. And so there are facts about him that are true, and there are things about him that are not true. And if we're going to go to the Lord, all capitals, we're going to have to actually know him. And it's when we come to know him that we realize he's bigger than our problems. Now we can trust him. So engage in the, in the spiritual disciplines. Spend some time studying the attributes of God and just worshiping him. And if we're going to choose purpose over futility, we have to know what our purpose is. Take this question, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, knowing that your purpose in life is to bring glory to God and just enjoy him. Into every sphere of life, everything you do when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're watching Netflix, when you're hanging out with your family, Glorify God. Know it brings him glory. He loves it. He enjoys it. And you can enjoy it too. You get back all those things that you thought you had to give up. A practical note here, by the way, on the spiritual disciplines, maybe those things that were on your mountain is a good place to start with a fast. Right? Whatever that answer was, what is your mountain? Where do you go when life is too much? Maybe take that thing and put it aside for a little bit and spend some time replacing that comfort with some time with the Lord, getting to know who he is and praying. So we're going to go back to our big idea here. We can overcome even our most intimate fears by intimately knowing the Lord. And of course there, that's the challenge. You have to actually know the Lord, all capitals. Matt Schwartz gave me a book recently and I read it and it was called Deep Discipleship by J.T. English. And he says in it, and I found this extremely convicting, that we have a church who can tell you every nuance of their Enneagram number and yet struggles to convey even the most basics of the attributes of God. Okay, that um, we don't know who he is. Um, the point of that isn't to put down, you know, using personality typing well. It's, it's just saying that if we only stare at ourselves, we're going to fall short. What if I did this? What if I told you how much I love my wife? I just love her so much. And again, I'm kind of stealing this from the book, but and you ask, well, what do you love about her? And I go, I just love her. I love her blonde hair. I love her blue eyes and her fair skin. I love how spontaneous she is. 
You guys know my wife. You'd be like, who is he talking about? That's not her. She's got almost black hair, you know, brown skin, brown eyes. And she's like, she always says, you know, she's the banks, I'm the river. Uh, you know, I'm the kite, she's the string. She's not the, the spontaneous one in the family, and I love that about her. But if I was describing her in this way, you'd say, do you even know your wife? And if you don't, how can you say that you love her? Right? We say we love God, but we don't know him. And we don't know him because we don't spend time with him. We're too busy filling all that time with these lesser things that will never satisfy. I told you I go to cereal. Like, I'm sorry, but Captain Crunch is out of his league when it comes to the things I'm going through. Like, he can't help me. He's not going to be the one to get me through this, right? Know your God. Everything we do should be about getting to know him better because when we come to know him, we find that the words of 1 John 4 ring true. 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. And it goes on to say that perfect love casts out fear. We go to God because he is love and because he can cast out our fear. We can overcome even our most intimate fears by intimately knowing the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, cast out our fear. Fear is telling us to escape because everything is falling apart. Fear is telling us that everyone is out to get us. Fear is telling us that there's no hope of things ever getting better. But we know you, Lord. We know you. We know your promises. So we don't have to listen to fear anymore. Fear wants us to believe that our story is already over, but it's not. Our stories have been written into your story, and your story never ends. Help us to hold on to hope that fear will have an end. Our fear will end. Your perfect love will cast fear out forever. And after all fear is gone, we will go on and on and on for your glory as we enjoy